There's two ways you could go about after getting shot. You could go into a severe deep depression, which some guys do, or you could view it as a second lease on life. Welcome to the Impact of Leadership podcast brought to you by CCB Technology. I'm your host, Steve Shear, and this is the podcast where we believe that no one drifts into excellence. Join me as I work to figure this leadership thing out on purpose. In this episode, we are highlighting a very large group of folks that have served our country via the U.S. military. I sat down with Saul Newton, the executive director of the Wisconsin Veterans Chamber of Commerce, and then also... Andrew Boma, he's a wounded warrior who has some crazy, crazy stories uh, about being overseas and the lessons learned through battle. So stick around. You're going to love this. Here it is, my conversations with both Andrew Boma and Saul Newton. All right, Andrew, so this for me is kind of coming full circle. It's a cool thing to be able to do after not seeing you for several years, knowing you and your family for over 20-ish years now. And um, it's been quite a while. It has been. And then running into you at Costco of all places as I'm yeah. feeding all uh, all four, 12. Your basketball team. Yeah, my basketball team. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, but being able to do this, is, is there's a sweetness to this, but the story is really, really heavy. So um, before I get into all of that, why don't you kick us off a little bit of a rundown, a quick rundown of who you are, um, where and when you serve the military, things like that. All right. Well, like you said, Drew. Drew. Yeah, is, I called you Andrew. I'm used no, to that. Yeah, yeah. But what am I now, 30-something years old, 30-ish, 3-ish? Yeah, when I joined the military when I was 20, okay. when I was 20, uh, out of Madison, Wisconsin, um, young and... Uh, a little naive at the time, I picked infantry, and yeah, it was full of adventure. So when we, when you went into um, to sign up, you picked infantry. Was there anything in particular that caused you to go that route? Any other military person would know that uh, recruiters have a tendency to, lack of a better word, exaggerate things. Ah, so yeah, not military over here. So yeah, that makes sense now. Um, okay. they sold me on the adventure part. I guess is what they got me as like, you know, oh, you're travel the world, you do this, you'll do that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that that's uh, that's what I was looking to do. So yeah, we'll do that. Okay. So then, before we jump all the way into the story, um, what was it? Was there anything that in particular that caused you to enlist that like pushed you to go that way? Well, kind of actually. It was a more of a sad, depressing time in my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, I was up in Madison by myself. Well, I shouldn't say by myself because I had a great friend group up there, but my roommate and best friend had just left out of state, um, obviously had no relationship female-wise at the time, and I just felt this doing nothing with my life kind of feeling. Mm -hmm. So I needed, and I've always loved the military stuff. It's actually a great movie, I don't know if you remember, called Basic with John Travolta. Yeah. I wanted to be an army ranger. That's what I wanted to be. So then when it came that time where it's like, okay, well, I'm literally just wasting my life right now. I should probably do something sure. besides just work at a circuit city here and be depressed all day and in my one studio bedroom apartment. I met with a recruiter like within that day and literally like two weeks later, I was on a bus. Okay. 
off off and go and it, so, it was just like a snowball effect like yep this is right let's do this so then you you're enlisted you're the snowball effects happening you're on the bus how long were you enlisted before you were deployed an interesting story what you you get processed at a place called meps in milwaukee here no matter where you go in the state or get recruited out of of the state okay. everybody comes to milwaukee you do all your testing, then you pick where you're going to go, and you kind of already have an idea of where you want to go, given your talks with recruiters and whatnot. I wasn't too familiar with um, like duty stations, bases, and whatnot, it's how good they are, how bad they are. So I, I had no idea. literally did not care where I went. Mm-hmm. So we're sitting in after we did all of our medical exams and blood works and blah, blah, blah. Before we go back to pick our career and duty station, there were two other guys talking and they were talking about how great this place Fort Lewis was, right? Like it was like its own city. It's by far the best base in the army. And I'm like, okay, I'm just kind of eavesdropping, not really part of the conversation, just hearing these two guys talk. And it just so happens I was called before them, right? So I go back and I talk to this guy and, you know, I tell him, well, I talked about infantry with my um, recruiter and they're like, okay, cool. We got a thing called rapid deployment which you get paid an extra $500 a month if you go to this station, this station, this station. And one of them happened to be Fort Lewis. Mm. And I just heard all these guys ranting and raving out yeah. the thing about Fort Lewis. So I'm like, so you're telling me I can go to the best base and get paid an extra $500 a month for getting deployed, which I'm going to get deployed anywhere I go in the country mm-hmm. right now because this was, what, 2006 okay. at the time? Five, 2005 at the time. So in, anywhere you go, you're getting deployed. So I get an extra $500 a month and I get to go to the best duty station. I'm like, sign me up. There we go. Mm-hmm. Done. <laughs> so so that, that's how I ended up in Fort Lewis, Washington and, and with a rapid deployment kind of thing, so, which means I went to basic training. Right after basic training, I uh, usually have a stop at a recruiter station. That got skipped. Uh, I went straight to my duty station. Within two weeks... We got sent to a place called NTC, National Training Center, down in uh, California, which it's kind of like a simulated Iraq. Like, they actually hire former Iraqi citizens or oh, wow. Afghan citizens or, you know, just Middle Eastern people mm-hmm. who all work for the government, but they play the part of, like, either citizens or, like, terrorists over mm-hmm. there. Right? And it was it was intense. Like you're in this whole, like, you're not even in the United States anymore. It's this whole setup of, like, just miles of how it would be over there. Mm-hmm. That got us all ready for Iraq. Mm-hmm. And then bonded a, a lot, obviously, with my unit during that one month that we were locked in, it's called the box, we were locked in there. Got in in September of '05, and we were in Kuwait by June. From the time that you were in that space of your apartment and I got to do something with my life to the time that you were in Kuwait. Less than a year. Okay. So now, wow. All right. So now we're there. So take us through what happened when you got overseas. You go to Kuwait first, or at least my unit did for about two, three weeks. You go over all of uh, where you're going to be going and the dangers that are going to be there. And, and one of their main things was, if somebody gets shot by a sniper, standard operating procedure is he's pretty much on his own. I mean, you can coach from a distance, but you cannot go help him because there's videos of a guy getting hit 
somebody come out to help him, kill, help him, kill, help him, kill. And then he shoots the guy that he first injured. So we were there for about three weeks getting ready. And then, then we flew in at nighttime into, uh, I think it was right outside of Muzzle and then shipped into there. Met our people that we were taking over for. And those guys, obviously, crazy happy to see you because they've been there for 15 months and ready to go. So so you're tagging in for another group of folks that mm-hmm. need a break. And yeah. what you tag in, and then what happens? Well, you do um, ride-alongs at first because, obviously, they know the area. Um, so basically, you're just shadowing them for about a week. And then then you take over and they shadow you just to make sure things are already going over well. So that's a two-week process. And then third week, say goodbye. They actually get to go home, and then then it's all yours. And it was that third week, first week on our own, is when uh, first casualty of our entire unit right here. <laughs> so yeah. it didn't take very long. Yeah, so <laughs> walk, walk us through. Um, I, I know your story. It's been a long time since I've heard it. Um, but I want people that are listening in to, to kind of feel what you went through as, as much as possible. So what, what, what happened? It's a, I like to think it's a fun story nowadays, but. Uh, it's your story. If you want it to be fun, man, go ahead. <laughs> well, obviously at the time, scary. So what happened the day of was it was just a normal, we were about to go out on patrol day and uh, we get calls that the Iraqi army was taking fire from a graveyard. And obviously Iraqi army is coalition forces with the U.S. So then they call in Big Brother to go check it out. And there was one unit to check the graveyard. And then I think it was Tampa, which is one of the most dangerous streets in Iraq. There's a village across the street. So my unit, which is two strikers, uh, was sent to clear the little town. Or village, and another ones were going to clear the graveyard. We didn't find it. went door to door like we were supposed to. We'll say the politely knocking, kicking in doors kind of thing. <laughs> and you know, but at this time the war had been going on for years, so everybody in that village is super cooperative. I mean, they know. Okay, this we know what happened here. We're cooperating here. We'll all sit right here. We found a little caches of weapons, nothing too big, but no shooters or anything like that. So we're loading up to leave. And uh, like I said, we've been doing this for like a whole afternoon now. So we're all spent because you're obviously full kid in hot weather and up and down stairs and in and out of rooms and all that good stuff. So we're all spent, but we we did a thorough job, so we were all proud of ourselves and, you know, ready to go home, have a break, and then go back out later in the night. So, and we're, we're heading out, and we're in the, the convoy of strikers. Strikers are the, the big armored six vehicle that look like a hybrid tank kind of thing. Okay. Super mm-hmm. armored, super fast. Awesome vehicles. Hold about 12 people in them, plus a driver and whatnot. So we are headed back. And I, if you can picture, inside a striker, there's two benches. And um, I was on the end of a bench, and my medic, who you get one medic per platoon, he was across from me on the other side of the bench. Now, 
usually the medic should never ever sit there because he is the least dispensable person in the you know in the platoon because you kind of need him if you get hurt. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So um, as soon as the back door drops down, those two people get out and pull guard right away. So again, the medic should not ever be pulling guard because if something happened to him, who's going to fix you guys? <laughs> so, but for some reason that time, I don't know whether it's just because we were new there or I like to think it's uh, one of those everything happens for a reason kind of moments. He was sitting across from me. So the door goes down and he jumps out and he pulls guard and I pull guard on the other side. He pulls guard on the village side and I pull guard on the graveyard side. We stop because uh, somebody said our tow rope, which is just a big rope with a hook on it in case somebody gets uh, the blown tire or, you know, accident you could just hook them up drag them back to base and fix them there because you don't want to stay out longer than you have to so that's why we stopped was because the tow rope was hanging so when the tailgate goes down like i said i get out he gets out and then the third person gets out to try and fix the tow rope i hear like i can't see anything i don't see anything hanging i hear him arguing back and forth and i was there for over 30 seconds if that's Kind of the standard rule. If you're there for over 30 seconds, you take a knee because you want as less profile as possible just in case anything happens. You don't want your whole body exposed. So I take a knee and then now here's the part of the story where I believe in guardian angels. I do. And another reason why I think uh, the big man and his son himself know how to have a good time and they know their crowd uh, because what I heard was, uh, F it, let's go, right? So then I stand up. As soon as I stand up, I get shot. Well, I don't know I got shot, but I fall back down. My initial thought was I stepped on something and I just blew my legs off. I couldn't feel my legs. Kind of a little discombobulated, like, what am I supposed to do? Like, I, I like, trying to think of it, you know. There's so many things going through your head. And then first thing, obviously, I do is reach out and feel my legs. Okay, my legs are still there. Cool. I can't feel them, but, I mean, I can feel them with my hands. So I didn't blow anything off. So then you just hear open fire. Like, the, all the vehicles are just firing at something. I have no idea what. Like I said, I was pulling guard. I didn't see anything. I have no idea where this came from. Uh, another blessing it was I had my medic already outside the vehicle with me. Now, remember, he cannot come help me. But what he can do is coach me. And he saw, like, where my wounds were. And he's like, okay, this is what you need to do. Relax. You just crawl around to this side. Come over here. We're going to try and help you up after you get around to this side. And, like, he was so calm and collected during that whole time. It was a godsend. Like I said, everything happens for a reason kind of thing. Like, he, good soldier, knows what he's doing in a time like that. And he absolutely helped me. And... I can remember those that right there felt like an eternity to get around that corner and then up onto the back end of that vehicle. At this time, I realized I was hit by a sniper. All those images of those videos are coming back, you know, like you can think, just please don't shoot again. Please don't shoot again. Like, just give me time. That's all I need is hopefully this fire is buying me time and, and you know, your family and all that stuff. And But mainly just get around and get safe is all you can think of. So then I get around the corner and then I was trying to pull myself up and my like kit was getting caught on stuff and I couldn't get it and another buddy of mine who was up top firing a uh, 
50 cal, hopped down, grabbed me by like the helmet, pulled me up, yanked me in, and they closed the door on me, and I just kind of fell into the vehicle. So I get in, and that was just like the biggest relief I've ever felt in my life. Like, oh crap, I'm not dead. He didn't shoot again. Like that right there, it's like, I just got shot, but I'm so happy. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, then here's, here's the part of the story where it makes it a little lighter. Uh, you don't wear underwear in the desert, chafing issues, right? Sure, so, I can imagine. Yeah, it's just a thing, I guess. And they're trying; they're cutting off my pants to um, obviously get at the wound. And uh, last thing I remember saying before I pass out for like eleven days was, "None of you guys look. I know you're all jealous." <laughs> Everybody starts laughing in the vehicle. <laughs> just got shot, like bleeding out, and I just made everybody laugh in the vehicle. And then next thing I know, I woke up in Walter Reed in D.C., and that was I got shot on the third of August, and I woke up August eleventh. First thing you do after you get shot is you go to the local fob and the medical station there. And I had a, apparently at the time, a tremendous team that feel fixed me up like solid. Again, mind you, I was the first casualty of the entire brigade. So I got a lot of attention from higher ups. Yeah. <laughs> like they were all coming to see me and obviously I don't remember any of it. They pinned the purple heart on me while I was still in Mosul, which usually never happens. But again, first casualty, I get a lot of attention from a lot of higher ups. They put me in an induced coma for a lot of it. And when they, they could just like stop the drip and then I'd wake up and I could talk, but I don't remember any of that. So mm -hmm. after Mosul, they fly you to Germany. That's where they fix you up even better in the hospital, get you ready to go back to the States. No, while I was in Germany, apparently had a heart attack. So they got super worried about how if I would even make it back to the States. So they got emergency passports for my mom and dad and my little sister to come see me in case I didn't make it. So they flew them out to Germany like in a day. You know, it usually takes you, what, four weeks to get a passport. They got it within 24 hours. <laughs> the military's like, here you go, here you go, go. <laughs> So they came out to Germany. Obviously, I don't remember any of it. I got pictures of it, but I don't remember much of it. Uh, There's actually a National Geographic photographer that was in Longshore at the time, which is where I was at. And he asked my parents, he's like, before my parents even saw me, he's like, is it okay if we go in, we're doing this piece on um, medics and whatnot. Can we go in and uh, photograph you and your son and things like that? And my mom was like, yeah, that's fine. And so... National Geographic got this amazing photo of the first time my parents saw me. And uh, it looks horrible. If you're ever interested, December of 06 on the centerfold. <laughs> so, Still mixing in humor in oh, this yeah. So, situation. Yeah, there are some things that I remember briefly. like um, They almost feel like dreams, but from Germany, because they have to wake you up every now and then. I remember hitting on nurses, asking them if they come here often and things like that. Uh, <laughs> They're there every day, obviously. Yeah. But So that's the first kind of things I remember. But then the, like, the actual thing that I remember is when I'm getting wheeled in to Walter Reed on the 11th. It was at nighttime. I had a breathing tube still, and I'm trying to talk. That's the first thing I remember is trying to talk with a breathing tube in, and then they took that out. I'm like, okay where am I? Mm -hmm. And they told me I was in DC and things like that. And then a little over a year, I was wow. at Walter Reed. I couldn't even remember the last time I saw you without 
you know, a, a cane. I remember you right. coming to, to church um, when, right. when you got back and you were in a wheelchair and all hooked up to stuff. Yep, right after I got shot, yeah. yeah. Doing the tour, if yeah. you will. Yeah. You have no idea how much attention you get right after you get shot. Yeah. It's it's a little intense. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, when you, when you look back, um, what are a couple things that, I know you mentioned you had an awesome team and it sort of played oh, into your overall well, yeah. story. Yeah. That is, um, I had the best doctors at Walter Reed. Like, hands down. My team, like, they all, they assign you a team. When I first got there, I was on the white team, um, which was uh, Dr. Wakefield and Dr. Adinian. They were, Dr. Wakefield was the one in charge, and Dr. Adinian was, like, his um, number two guy, mm-hmm. general surgeons. Now, remind you, the bullet went through my left hip, shattered that through the top of my rectum, enlarged broke and lodged into my right hip or bounced off my right hip and went into like kind of the fat of my buttocks <laughs> so that was um obviously you can't use that function when a bullet had traveled through it so they gave me a thing called a colostomy which is you poop out your belly for i had that for eight months and eight days <laughs> yeah that's an intense thing i would not wish that upon anybody mm-hmm. And I feel bad for anybody who has to have those for medical reasons because, yeah, it's embarrassing. If that thing springs a leak, every single person in the room knows it Yeah, instantly. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, when, once I got that, my team, seeing them every day and how absolutely fantastic they were in terms of surgeries and whatnot was I had over 20-plus surgeries within the first month that I was there just because... They do a thing called a washout where I was open from a good six to eight inches of my stomach was just literally peeled open and they just had a mesh sitting over all my insides because I had to do washouts every single day to get out all the foreign contaminant from the bullet that passed through. By the end of it, it was, uh, I kind of enjoyed going into surgery because I was like, okay, here we go. I'll count backwards. I'll see you in about two seconds and then I'd like my pudding. <laughs> so literally you'd fall asleep and you'd wake up cool where's my pudding can i go back to my room now <laughs> like uh, it was a daily routine and yeah. these guys it was they were fun to joke around with made light of the whole situation and made because there's two ways you could go about after getting shot you could go into a severe deep depression which some guys do which is very obviously unhealthy and that's how dangerous things happen or you could view it as a second lease on life and just enjoy your life afterwards because you just survived something so traumatic like enjoy the rest of it this is all icing on the cake now you know Mm -hmm. you got a second chance yeah and that's how i went with it and it's made my life so much more awesome because of it so but as i was there I started talking with Dr. Wakefield and Dr. Dinian, and it turns out that they had partners right before that who just got um, deployed to Iraq. They were already in contact with, that was the team that fixed me up in Mosul, was the team they had worked with and their good friends that were in Iraq. So they already knew about my situation before I even got there. They knew how each other works, their shorthands, their things like that. So they're like, okay, this guy did this. We know why he did this because I've worked with him for years. So it was a very smooth transition into my team. It was, again, another amazing godsend where 
I just so happened to get the right doctors to fit with the doctors that I had back in the States. There is so much there, but I, I want to know now. So what is what does life look like for you now? Now it's um, arthritis in the hips and zero abdomen muscles. Other than that, I still try and stay active and do what I can. Yeah. I mean, you know, I used to be big into sports and things like that and mm-hmm. very active. I still am. I still play volleyball and I still do softball stuff and every now and then. So I just don't uh, don't get up as high as I used to. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, but no, yeah, it's a it's a daily. Some some months are worse than others in terms of arthritis and whatnot because I have it in both hips. Um, got cleared by a cardiologist years ago. So good. Well, as we uh, as we wrap up, is there anything else that that I forgot to ask about that you want to say, or anything that civilians should maybe know about soldiers re-entering civilian life? The main thing that I kept on telling people right when I got back, and what people don't realize is. When you're in it, you don't feel like you're doing something extraordinary at the time. And that's what everybody else sees that you did was something extraordinary. And you literally just feel like you were doing a job. That's just all that happened here. I was doing a job, and I just happened to get hurt on the job. And that's how mostly everybody, every wounded warrior that I've ever met has um, also felt the same way. It's... You're just doing a job. They don't feel as if like they that hero term that gets thrown out. Mm-hmm. You know, we knew the risks. We knew what we were getting into, and but I also think um, when today's society has made up for the past, which I feel horrible about the the Vietnam veterans that came back, mm-hmm. got completely mistreated. Right, so it's almost as if we get overly treated. I'm used to being told what to do, doing this every day, routine, things paid for, and now I just have to go do this. And that's how people fall into depressions and PTSD-esque things. So There's a whole other section here that we could, I'm sure we could dive into on the proper way to welcome somebody back. Oh, yeah. And I, I appreciate the conversation. Uh, again, from a selfish standpoint, I'm glad to, to be with you again. <laughs> Uh, I am so grateful that you were spared. Um, yeah, me too. I and we can uh, awesome kids out of it. So. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and and I'm glad that we can tell your story again today. Uh, what you sacrificed back then wasn't a waste, man. So uh, I, I'm, I know. it's serving to inspire people all over again. I'm sure that people are listening in. So thank you for so. being here, uh, for being willing to talk through this. And um, yeah, man, I'm glad. To, Anytime. I'm glad to know you. Anytime. All right, so thank you so much for taking time. Um, I am so excited to be here again um, at Ward 4 of Milwaukee. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, we were introduced, and um, I, I'm not going to give away all of that you're going to be talking about, but um, after being introduced to, to you and what you do at the chamber a few weeks ago, I knew that I had to have you on the podcast. I'm glad it worked out. Thank you for making time. Thank you for agreeing to do this. So uh, please give a quick rundown of who you are, quick introduction of, of your name, who you are, what you do here with the chamber. Sure. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for, for having me on. My name is Saul Newton. I'm the founder and executive director of the Wisconsin Veterans Chamber of Commerce. Uh, we are a membership-based nonprofit organization based in Milwaukee, but covering the entire state. 
uh, dedicated to expanding economic opportunity for veterans and military families by working with Wisconsin's business community. Well, there's a lot. There's a lot there. How how do you explain the mission of the uh, the Veterans Chamber of Commerce? Yeah. Um, so essentially, the way that I describe our organization and our function is anywhere on the Venn diagram where business issues and veterans issues intersect. Okay. Um, our, our vision is to make Wisconsin the most veteran-friendly state in the country. We want Wisconsin to be a place where um, folks who are either just coming out of the military uh, and their families or folks who have been out of the military for years or even decades see Wisconsin as a place of opportunity, uh, a place where they can really be successful as they transition uh, from the military back into civilian life and have every opportunity to reach their full potential. So whether that is starting a business, whether that is uh, being a a part of the workforce, whether that is um, being leaders in their community, um, we view ourselves as, as kind of the the uh, facilitator to make those things happen. Um, And simultaneously, we want to highlight the role that military veterans and military service members and their families play in our state's economy, Uh, even in a state like Wisconsin, where we don't have as large of a veteran population as, say, uh, states like North Carolina or Texas or California. Mm -hmm. Um, We still have a very significant number of uh, of veterans who go on to start their own business. We have a significant number of veterans and military family members who are consumers uh, and purchase goods and services across the state um, who are leading in their workplaces and, again, are, are using the experience that they gain through the military to improve the lives of those around them. And mm-hmm. so... Um, our our uh, function is to is to really shine a light and to um, to really get folks to understand how much veterans contribute uh, to the state of Wisconsin and why we want more of them coming here. It's good. It's really good. So um, take us back to the inception. So mm-hmm. I, I know was it three years ago? Yeah, about three years ago they yeah. they launched. Um, take us back to that sure. and some of the why. So. Sure. Why did you, you started alluding to it and you hit it a little bit, but let me know, let us yeah. know that they're listening in. Why did you feel the need to, to launch uh, the chamber? Well, the the uh, origin story of the Veterans Chamber, if you will, goes back a little bit further than, than three years. It actually goes back about uh, roughly about seven years to okay. when I got out of the military. Uh, I had served in the military for about three and a half years. Um, I, was, I was stationed in Colorado, spent about 13 months overseas. Um, but I came back to Wisconsin because my, it's where I'm originally from. My family is here. Um, but my own transition out of the military, and I, I think it's a pretty common experience for, for a lot of folks who serve in the military is pretty isolating. You go from, you know, a, a pretty strong, uh, network of folks around you, you know, your friends and, and service members and, um, you know, you go from this tight-knit group, and then all of a sudden you're back in, in the real world, so to speak. And so when when I got out of the military, that was definitely um, an adjustment process for, for me. Um, and then, uh, you know, after I had gone back to school and was looking for uh, opportunities once I got done with school, there, there really wasn't a good 
uh, organization that I could plug into um, to meet other veterans, to uh, connect with folks who were in the professional world, were in the field that at that point I wanted to go into. And so, um, you know, this, this very strange confluence of events kind of all came together about three years ago uh, and really just realizing that there was a need for an organization, for a business organization that focused on uh, the needs of, of veterans and military families. And there wasn't one that existed either in the state or, or really anywhere in the country. There were a few other states that had similar types of organizations, but, but nothing, sure. uh, nothing like this. And so, um, you know, just like any good business idea, recognizing a need and yeah. recognizing that it wasn't being addressed, um, we decided to start one. So in, in 2015, um, we put out a press release that said we're starting a chamber of commerce for veterans. Uh, we're hosting a happy hour in Milwaukee. Come check us out, see what we're, what we're about. Um, I always like to joke with, with folks that uh, that first event we had, roughly about a dozen people come and just about half of them weren't directly related to me. So sure. I counted it as a, yeah, I yeah. counted it as a win and, and just uh, kept, kept trucking along. Uh, and now fast forward about just over three years and, and we are an organization with hundreds of members all across the state of Wisconsin. We put on uh, more than two dozen different programs. Um, so kind of from those those humble beginnings of, you know, starting very small, but also recognizing that it was something I was looking for and something that didn't exist. That's what really motivated me to, to start the organization. And, and to be frank, the, the other thing that motivated me was um, getting folks to learn a little bit more about folks who served in the military. Yeah. Um, you know, we, the, the population of military veterans in our society is as low as it's ever been for the first time in American history from every member of the military from the lowest ranking lowest ranking private to the highest ranking officer mm-hmm. um, volunteered to be there and so what that means is in previous generations a lot of folks had direct connections to the military either they served or they had a family member or a close friend that's not really the case anymore and so I think what motivated me was seeing that a lot of, for a lot of people, the only thing that they knew about the military and about veterans and about families was um, what they see on TV or what they see in the media, which tends to focus on really negative things. Mm-hmm. And it's not to minimize those things, but it's more, uh, my motivation is more to um, highlight how, how much veterans and their families contribute uh, mm-hmm. While they're in the military, certainly, but also after they get out, um, and how much they bring to the table. So that's that's very helpful, and actually a good segue into something that we spoke about. Um, how do you address that obstacle with non-veterans who are interested in joining or getting involved? I think, generally speaking, even kind of taking off my my chamber hat for a minute, I think that folks are more directly tied to veterans in the military than they may realize. Um, And a lot of times it just takes a little bit of, um, a little bit of initiative to identify those ways that that there's a connection. I mean, at the end of the day, we are a business organization. We exist to uh, help our members uh, increase revenue and cut their costs so that they can be successful. And as we look at 
you know, just statistically, we have 65,000 businesses across the state of Wisconsin that are owned by military veterans. We have roughly an estimated 3 million veterans and immediate family members in the state that uh, are looking to purchase goods and services just like everyone else is. Um, we have uh, an incredible workforce shortage in the state that um, employers are looking for highly trained, highly motivated, qualified uh, employees to add to their organizations. These are all areas that even if someone is not necessarily a veteran, it's a good investment for them to to partner and to engage with with this community. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's in their best interest to do so. Yeah. Um, but but even more fundamentally, I, I think that there's also there's a pretty big divide between the folks who have served in the military or have that direct connection and the much larger general public that don't have that direct connection. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this civilian military divide, as it's called, um, does have real impact for folks on both sides of that equation. Mm-hmm. And the more that you can um, create environments and create opportunities for these seemingly disparate groups to engage with one another, um, everyone benefits. So. The way that the way that we look at it is, we can help facilitate that. Frankly, by making it, uh, you know, a value proposition, if you will. Yeah. You know, the it's in their best interest, either either as as consumers, as businesses, as uh, employees, whatever facet. There's a connection to the military mm-hmm. if folks are willing to uh, to engage with. Them. So that's um, that's good. And for for maybe the next thirty seconds or so, or a minute. Before I get to my last two questions, um, help help folks delineate because this helped me when I was here uh, mm-hmm. between um, you know veteran owned, veteran sure. friendly, and different categories that you all have here. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the way that we describe what we do is working with what we call veteran owned and veteran friendly businesses. A veteran owned business is any business that is owned or led by someone who served in the military. That could be National Guard, reserves, active duty. Um, whether they were in the military for three years or 30 years. That's what what we consider to be uh, a veteran-owned business. Mm -hmm. Um, We also work with businesses that aren't necessarily owned by veterans, but as I said, are looking to engage with veterans in uh, in some other way, maybe as as consumers. Um, You know, if there's a coffee shop out there that offers, you know, a, a slight discount for someone who served in the military or, or currently serves. Um, if there's, uh, you know, a business or an organization that um, does a lot of work in the community with um, folks who, who served in the military. Um, you know, that, that's certainly um, folks that we want to elevate and we want to recognize as well. But and and finally, as I said, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of employers out there that are looking for um, for qualified employees. And I'm biased, but I think that veterans and military family members are some of the best employees out there. So um, we work really diligently to uh, help employers recruit and retain yeah. uh, those folks to those organizations. Thank you for doing that because that, that's what helped me know what to go back and, and say to Patrick. Because mm-hmm. um, now, within the last, I think, 48 hours, CCB became a, you know, a, a member of the chamber, and we're glad to do that, and we're looking at uh, coming to um, the upcoming event. Well, you know what, I'll just ask that. So what's coming up sure. that people should know about that? Uh, 
so we're we're a very active organization. We host uh, more than fifty events every year. Um, our largest event is coming up next month. We host the Wisconsin Veterans Business Conference. This is the largest convening of. Uh, Wisconsin's veteran business community as a whole. And then the, the high point for us is the, uh, is the awards luncheon that we host uh, every year. So the Wisconsin Veteran Business Awards Luncheon recognizes um, leaders in the business community who have uh, stepped up and done a lot to support uh, veterans in, in the state of Wisconsin and, and helped build the veteran business community. Um, and we're, we're very excited this year that our keynote speaker is uh, former uh, Major League Baseball Commissioner and U.S. Army veteran Bud Selig. Wow. Uh, so we're, wow. we're really looking forward to, to hearing from him. That's awesome, man. So yeah. the last thing as, as we close out, so how do people that are listening in get involved with what you're doing? The easiest way is to go to our website, wiveteranschamber.org. Uh, if they are interested in becoming members, uh, we are a membership-supported organization, so they can sign up to become members right on our website. They can see what events and what programs we have coming up in the in the next weeks and, and months ahead. Um, and we would love to have uh, everyone listening, whether they are uh, a veteran, a family member, or just someone who is interested in, in meeting some some pretty cool people, uh, come out and and uh, attend one of our upcoming events. Um, we promise we'll make you feel welcome. It's good. Thank yeah. you so much for the time. I'm grateful for your service, not just to the country. I know it can be cliche to say that to, but that's we mean that. I mean that. CCB means that. Um, Thank you. And now to the local community, and and really after meeting you. The way I've been explaining it, you, you have served our country, you're serving our local community, and you're actually serving our, our local economy as well by building up the middle class and mm-hmm. small businesses in the, in the Wisconsin area. So, well, thank that, you. That's what we that's what we uh, what we try to do, and we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of our members. So, thank you to you, and thank you to CCB for for being part of this community. You bet. Yeah. If you have more interest in joining the chamber i promise we will have the in the show notes of the website that you can go to you can connect with the chamber you can connect with saul and if you have questions uh, i am a infant in the the uh, chamber membership stage but if you've got questions of what i've, I've experienced already uh, feel free to reach out to me directly you know how to contact me whether it's on linkedin or at impact podcast at ccbtechnology.com thanks again saul for your time it was a pleasure Thanks for uh, for having me, Steve. So takeaway and action item. First, the takeaway. For me, Andrew spoke to something that is vitally important, not just for the military, but for those of us that are in business and hoping to be excellent leaders. And that is the value of being prepared. Coming back to his story, his life was saved because the gentleman that was across from him was prepared. Now, they didn't—they weren't ready for a sniper. They weren't expecting, I should say, a sniper to just be sitting somewhere and to shoot them as they were sitting there. However, they were prepared for the worst case scenario. So that gentleman who was next to Andrew gave him instruction and helped him keep his life, got him back on the truck. And I think that translates really well to us in business. We can have a crazy, crazy day. And if we aren't prepared, if we aren't level-headed, if we didn't do our due diligence a couple weeks ago, 
for this potential scenario, well, then things could get even worse. And then apologies have to happen because we lost our cool. And I realize that is a long one, but the principle is true. Don't get prepared, be prepared, because you don't know when things are gonna go sideways. So now the action item is tied to a simple question. And the simple question is, are you prepared for the worst case scenario? Let's make it more real. Let's assume that the answer is no, and that you're in IT or you're responsible for the health of your IT department. Here at CCB, we work with folks like that all the time. What does that look like? Backup and disaster recovery plan. How quickly can your organization get back up and running when the worst case scenario happens? Have you tested that backup and disaster recovery plan? Do you have someone to partner with? Do you have it offsite? These questions need to be answered before the tornado rips through your building. Let's make it even a little bit more real on the other side of the house. So you're not in IT or responsible for IT, but you have direct reports like I do. And then all of a sudden, a great employee like Jason Coker, several months ago, several episodes ago, I talked about that. He went to Boys and Girls Club to take his dream job. If I wasn't ready for someone else to step in and help shoulder him being gone, those accounts, that profit, those relationships would be gone. So you can't get prepared for that. You have to be prepared or continually being prepared. Now you can't be 100% ready. I wasn't 100% ready for Jason to leave. You never really are. But the people coming in alongside me, they stepped in and we've been doing great. Now we miss Jason, but we were ready for that type of, a, of someone leaving. So as Patrick asks me, do we have a bench? So if you have a team that reports to you and looks to you, do you have a backup plan if your star player, baseball analogy, your star hitter gets injured, is gone, is having a bad couple months? Do you have somebody else to step in and produce? Do you have somebody else that's going to step in when they leave and go to a, their dream job like Jason did? Another long explanation of an action item, but it's real to me. So those are your takeaway and your action item. Thank you again for listening. I hope you had a fantastic Memorial Day weekend. Say thank you to a vet. And not just around a holiday, say it throughout the year. And from all of us here at CCB Technology, happy Memorial Day and thank you for taking time to listen.